1: Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. Jay.
0: Hey guys, Dr. Santos here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher.
1: And this week, I was kind of looking around for things to do, searching everywhere for a good Mm. topic. I looked in nooks. I was in nooks. I was in crannies. I was on top of the fridge. I was under the sink where we keep all the poisons. And then, Mm. as I was continuing to wander around my house looking for medical inspiration, my eyes happened to fall on a cake-battered ball, and the medicine cabinet.
0: Oh, uh, Do you have absolutely. a medicine cabinet
1: in your house, Santosh?
0: You know what? I, we, we actually don't. So the layout of our house right now does not have one of the mirrors that opens up and has a medicine cabinet behind it. We have everything in drawers below the sink.
1: This week, let's take a dive into the medicine cabinet for those of you who grew up with one. And for those of you who are just kind of looking around being like, oh yeah, what happened to them? They went the way of telephone booths and quicksand, you know, something we heard about a lot and ended up not seeing all that often.
0: Uh, At all. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Uh, Absolutely. If if we go back to just, just one century ago, we don't even need the way back machine for this. We can suffice with our memory. But around mm-hmm. the early 1930s, 10,000 New York families were part of a study conducted by the Office of Commissioner Accounts on the status of their home medicine cabinets. And this report <laughs> collected data about what kind of drugs, devices, and other healthcare products the average family kept on hand for first aid treatment. And it came to a troubling conclusion. <laughs> okay. Because what other conclusions are there on this show?
0: (laughs) Well, on occasion, we have a lovely yet surprising conclusion.
1: Surprising, often. Troubling, equally. The Office of Commissioner of Accounts discovered that the average home medicine cabinet, the first line of defense in the protection of the family, was shockingly ill-stocked, full of outdated medicines and drugs that could cause terrible side effects and usually missing several items the report considered to be absolutely necessary. By the end of this episode, you will know what those items are And what we recommend you should keep on hand in your medicine cabinet or medicine under the sink or wherever you are keeping your medicine, lonely kitchen drawer, perhaps.
0: (laughs) This is what I absolutely love about these kind of survey studies, right? Is you go into it, you know, just trying to learn what's going on and you find some things that you could take some serious action on that will actually improve people's lives. That is so, so cool. Josh- Think about um, like the N survey that we do every few years, which is a, a survey of like national healthcare workers and that kind of a thing. and it really teaches us you know kind of what our habits are, how we're doing, and what's killing us <laughs> like heart disease and diabetes and those rates and everything. but it, it really helps us focus in terms of what can we do to help people. So I I love when a simple survey of medicine cabinets can really make lives better. That's fantastic.
1: So based on the response of these 10,000 people and the equally panicked counter response from the government, the (laughs) Consumer Project of the U.S. Department of Labor commissioned a bulletin to educate families about proper home health care. And it starts with, and I, I love this because- I know it's like 1930s, but this definitely reads to me in the old 1950s radio announcer-style voice. Oh, yeah, yeah. Do you want to do it? Do I? (laughs) The average medicine cabinet presents a formidable array of bottles, jars, and boxes in the local home pharmacopoeia. The crowded shelves may look like a miniature drugstore, but still may not have on them those remedies which are best or most frequently needed for first aid treatment in the home. Especially problematic is the fact that the contents of the average medicine cabinet are based on commonly held ideas about best healthcare practices that are not, in fact, based on sound medical facts of the time. This bulletin is meant to address the situation by providing families with a list of 16 necessary items, including drugs like pain relievers, burn applications, tools like hot water bottles and toothbrushes, and surgical devices like scissors and tweezers.
0: Thank you, Josh. We'll come back on The Hour Every Hour.
1: Don't forget <laughs> Alka-Seltzer. Pop, pop, fizz, fizz. Oh, what a relief <laughs> it is.
0: Wait, wait, wait. This report's a little biased now.
1: Like- oh, you're right, you're right. I need to put in a proper 20th century medical ad. <laughs> this medical bulletin brought to you by cocaine. Good for what else, you. Yeah. Give it to your kids. Put it in your soda. Cocaine, is there anything it cannot solve?
0: <laughs> That's what I'm talking about.
1: <laughs> For all that we joke and I use any excuse to talk in my 20th uh, century announcer voice, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the idea of treating medicine at home or the idea of treating illness and disease at home was once the main way that everybody treated. And then we moved treatment to healthcare facilities. And now yep. it's starting to tilt back in some methods to the home. Prior to the 20th century, medicine chests, cupboards, shelves, all these things were pretty common, but they didn't resemble what we think of as the medicine cabinet in the bathroom today. Uh, And for that matter, why is it in the bathroom? Any guesses?
0: This is an odd one. It's it's kind of a head scratcher for me, right? Because where could it be? I, I guess it actually could be in the living room. Where, you know, you you keep medications where you need them, you know, if if you need a fever reducer, or if you need a first aid kit, you wouldn't want to put it in the kitchen, right? Because then it could accidentally get mixed with your your cooking somehow one way or the other. Um, Or it could spoil because there's heat in there, which you don't want for medications. But yeah, the bathroom, I don't know, it's such a ritual right now to keep. Medications in the bathroom, and to take your meds, like for instance, first thing in the morning when you wake up, or before you go to
1: sleep. Well, from the so, moment I like, wake up, before you put on your makeup, I take mm-hmm. a little pill for you. <laughs> Forever and ever. No, you're actually you're actually a little bit counterintuitive, Santosh, and you're showing your uh, temporal bias
0: because okay, okay.
1: because in fact medicine did used to be kept in the kitchen and there's a very good reason for that if a slightly misogynistic okay for centuries women were the primary providers of care for their family's health needs and most of the medicinal products and tools that they used were stored in the logical place given the material constraints that were involved the majority of medicinal the majority of medicinal remedies were mixed at home using domestic books including remedies alongside recipes for meals and other household prescriptions, right? You would make your own, you'd make your own pharmacy in the thing, and then maybe pick up a couple local herbs or flowers from the apothecary, as well as the grocer. So you could make a stew and a, and a drought or a uh,
0: draft draft is what you're thinking.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's what, okay.
0: (laughs) Okay. So I mean, you know, kitchen chemistry, right? For cooking and baking. Yeah, I guess that flows very easily into kind of making medications from kind of component parts. So I'm guessing it's not just, you know, like the old school herbal stuff. This is also, for instance, if you need to, I don't know, compound the aspirin that you get from the pharmacy, you would have like a mortar and pestle in there and you'd have the tools that you need to mix and all that kind of a thing and weigh and measure and all that. oh, that makes a ton of sense, actually. So you, you wouldn't get the medication necessarily ready to use. You'd have to kind of make it up. Interestingly,
1: okay. and we covered this in a previous season's episode on architecture and medicine. But when you really started to see the medicine cabinet move to the bathroom is around the 50s when we started becoming concerned, both one, with hygiene and standardization and sterility. This really was brought about by a change in the layperson, the average everyday modern man's understanding of science. You had to believe in a new idea in medicine around this turn of the century. Human bodies were standardized, and the same medicine would work equivalently on everyone. So you had to believe there's a shared normal body temperature, that deviations from the norm meant ill health, not just a simple, oh, well, you know, that's just my body. And as okay. antibiotics started becoming more common, as a greater understanding of science and discoveries, the invention of vaccines, kind of the, the medical industrial revolution took place, okay people started realizing, oh, maybe we don't want to keep all the things we put into our bodies for illness in the same place as we keep the food. And it started shifting over to the bathroom. So there was a real interesting change with a greater public knowledge of science that shifted where we culturally started thinking about putting things. Now, why don't we go into some of the items that you would typically expect to find in a medicine cabinet? Just off the top of your head, what's one you can think of?
0: Uh, cur- sorry, current or uh, oldie-timey? Uh,
1: well, again, we just talked about the standardization of bodies. So leaving out cocaine, heroin, and arsenic, what, <laughs> what things do you think might be seen then and now?
0: So now is pretty easy. going to have a, a razor. Um, sure. You know, for shaving. Um, you'll have toothbrush and toothpaste. Mm-hmm. You may have something for hair care, creams and lotions, so for skin care.
1: Right, and right. Puts the lotion the, on its skin.
0: Right. And for pain and fever is going to be some of the most common stuff. So acetaminophen, ibuprofen, and your other very common remedies, whether or not they work. <laughs> so cold and cough remedies like NyQuil. And um, I guess some people will keep mucomists so N-acetylcysteine and uh, Dimetap or Robitussin, you know, one of those medications, which I got to say just they don't do anything, (laughs) but they're some of the most prized things. And likewise, you know, for cough or sore throat, probably some um, like... Halls or one of the other candy type of um, menthol stuff that you can do. Um, vapor, uh, sorry, uh, menthol rub for your chest. So, uh, you know, menthol camphor in um, something like uh, petroleum jelly, uh, probably just petroleum jelly. So, Vaseline, something like that. Don't um, forget your
1: petroleum peanut butter.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's gross. Uh, that's that's all I got right now off the top of my head.
1: So a few things uh, I would add. And how about allergy medication?
0: Oh, sure, sure, sure. Absolutely. Especially here in Los Angeles, where we're always ha- hacking and coughing.
1: Yeah. So depending on the time of year and where you live, you should definitely have some kind of eye drop or antihistamine, drowsy or non-drowsy, your choice. Ooh, uh
0: I forgot to put in there, uh, bandages, band-aids, yeah. if you get a cut.
1: Okay. Bandages and gloves, antibacterial cream or ointment. So you did get that one. So minor skin infections. Uh, So, and there's a difference between a cream and an ointment. Creams are water soluble and you put them on after washing a wound with soap and water.
0: Got it. Got it.
1: Ointments are oil based and can be used when the wound could be exposed to water. uh, Meaning it can't be totally covered up or it's, you know. Somewhere that the sun may not shine, but the water will definitely reach.
0: (laughs) Got to get. Oh, I completely forgot about those. Okay, so creams and lotions, which are um, antiseptics as well for wound care.
1: Yeah, so something to to get those topical wounds, those scraped knees.
0: In oldie timey, thinking about wound care, and you were telling me that moms were largely responsible for you know this kind of a thing. Would they have? like stitching supplies in their medicine cabinet to actually like throw their own stitches
1: yeah so they the old-timey one recommended a sewing kit or a sewing needle and thread for mending small tears cuts or bruises now they were not encouraged to perform surgery sure Uh, sure. this is (laughs) more for bandages or you know in in an immediate event. So yes. And and again, I'm kind of jumping around between some things that would still be found in different. So instead of finding topical ointments or creams, you might find salves, liniments to be placed kind of in the more old timey medicine chest cabinet.
0: <laughs> you, you'll you still find these. So when I go back over to India, there are a few of these which are, they, they come in the form of a petroleum jelly. But for instance, you'd put it on your forehead. So there's one called Tiger Balm, B-A-L-M, <laughs> which you put on your forehead to help relieve a headache, for instance.
1: Decongestants. And again, this almost kind of comes up with allergy as well. Okay. Okay. And along with pain relief pain relievers. Now, when you're choosing a pain reliever for your medicine cabinet, be sure to evaluate the needs of your particular household. Uh, Some can be taken every 12 hours. Some can only be taken, some can be taken every four hours. And it's a good idea to have at least two different kinds of painkillers on hand. Yeah.
0: So meaning uh, pain relievers that have different forms of action.
1: I like to keep uh, Tylenol or the generic brand acetaminophen just always, mm-hmm. always in there. And sure. uh, Motrin, which has a different mechanism of action, can't always be used across the same kinds of injuries. So sometimes right, right. I'm going to want to choose a Tylenol. Sometimes I'm going to want to take a Motrin or an Ibuprofen. Yeah, yeah. I don't even remember what I... the brand or generic name <laughs> is
0: anymore. So the, the, yeah, the brand name in this case would be Motrin. Advil's another famous one here in the States. And Ibuprofen is going to be your generic, yeah.
1: And I think it's Excedrin be- is on there too, and that's like Tylenol with caffeine.
0: With caffeine, yes. So combination, uh, really, really good for headaches. Actually, to use caffeine in conjunction with acetaminophen,
1: an anti-diarrheal medication, especially if you have young kids, oh. elderly people, or pets. Yep, yeah. <laughs> one of those super three. <laughs> important,
0: super important. So the the brand name that we're thinking about here, like Imodium, for instance. To, to slow your bowels. <laughs> and always remember, all you brilliant people out there, do not use okay these anti-diarrheals, especially in children, when they're having acute gastroenteritis, a stomach flu, because you actually could prolong their disease or potentially make things worse.
1: Also, don't use it if you notice blood in your stool uh, really for any reason. Even if it's hemorrhoids, you could just benefit from waiting a little bit. And <laughs> if it's due to an infectious cause or an actual GI bleed, the last thing you want is to contract and stop those muscles from moving.
0: Yeah, that's a bad idea. So essentially, there's actually a very narrow window <laughs> where you can use <laughs> the emodium <laughs> safely so i don't know how much that should maybe be in the
1: drawer or in the cabinet most causes of diarrhea are not going to be sufficient to warrant a hospitalization so i think it is good to just kind of have it available certainly if you're going to be traveling your family likes to go camping take road trips some of these can make good bug out bag medications as well as medicine cabinet
0: gotcha gotcha uh
1: here's one that um definitely was kept on hands back in the day and should be today some form of activated charcoal
0: oh yes 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 so this one you know and we think about it nowadays with a lot of um what do you call it complementary medicine <laughs> or some people take it nutritionally uh, activated charcoal activated Which charcoal it does
1: nothing Nothing no. for you nutritionally <laughs> I don't want to hear a single word about It clears the toxins No, no you guys It's meant to like When you have your stomach pumped Like no. not drinking a smoothie Yeah Yeah <laughs>
0: It is specifically for those organic compounds that can be absorbed by activated charcoal. All right. So organic compounds are, you know, are going to be a ton of different types of medications and toxins. If you accidentally or on purpose ingest a certain amount and you need to make sure that it doesn't get absorbed into the bloodstream from your enteric tract, then activated charcoal actually in quite large amounts, Josh are used, and then hopefully it soaks up you know the medication or whatever it, you know you need to soak up, and you can then just like you said, pump the stomach <laughs> to remove all that stuff uh, out bound bound to the charcoal, or you know if it has to, and it's gone down far enough down the enteric track, you just poop it out. <laughs> But yeah, it's, it's not going to do anything for nutrition or like so-called
1: general health. Yeah. So, but I mean, especially with young children, parents should have something to induce vomiting in the case of an accidental ingested poison. Now activated charcoal has been the recommendation for years and years and years, but back in the old timey days, uh, the Mm -hmm. good old cocaine ghost days. They recommended syrup of ipecac, so named because that's the sound you make on taking it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we. I think Josh, you and I, we learned of a few, like a handful of indications for syrup of ipecac in emergency situations uh, with toxin or medication ingestion, and I believe at this point it's all gone away. It's we, don't, we no longer have a good indication for a syrup of a bacac. Um right now inducing vomiting in children or adults actually there's almost no indication for it. So, you know, when you take those kind of things, yes, activated charcoal can help and then it's off to the ER to see what can be done because we found that inducing vomiting just tends to create more problems than it Yeah, does.
1: and And there is no, even though, you know, we're saying you should have some kind of charcoal around, this is not a substitute for medical advice and professional help. If you notice a poisoning, immediately contact 911 local poison control. And then if professional help is not readily available, you can administer the activated charcoal with the most common side effects being black stool, black tongue and vomiting. Yeah, (laughs)
0: it does not taste good.
1: It's not supposed to. (laughs) It's not a petroleum peanut butter and jelly. Stop Um, saying
0: that. (laughs) Okay,
1: so so that's some of the medications they recommend keeping around. A fever
0: about petroleum peanut butter. (laughs) It's in my brain.
1: So those are the kind of base classes of medication. An anti diarrheal. a vomiting inducer or an antitoxin, um, fever relievers, pain relievers, allergy relievers. Those are kind of the general medication classes. Now, they also recommend keeping adhesive bandages, Mm -hmm. important to have on hand. Some people prefer to have just gauze pads with tape. Uh, versus adhesive, and it needs to be larger than your simple box of band aids. A thermometer, I, yeah. digital these days, no longer a livestock <laughs> thermometer. as
0: yes. No, no, no more alcohol or mercury with glass that can break off inside someone. And it should be a um, a digital thermometer that can either be rectal for little little babies or. If, you know, for other people who are perhaps disabled, where you can get a rectal temperature, axillary under the armpit or sublingual under the tongue.
1: Now, Um, sublingual is... Not
0: all at the same time.
1: Now, sublingual (laughs) is going to be... No, no, that's that's a whole (laughs) section of the internet that we do not visit. Now, sublingual is going to be your probably gold standard in this case, the rectal temperature will give you the closest to the core body temperature. And while it's the most accurate reading, and the under the armpit is the least accurate, under the tongue strikes just the right balance between not terribly invasive for being shoved in your body, but also far more accurate at getting a rough gauge of what your temperature is.
0: Yeah, that's really ideal.
1: If you cannot get it into your mouth and you do not want it up your behind, then under the arm in adults is an okay substitute. Although, truthfully, with the rising levels of obesity around the world, axillary temperatures really aren't recommended for anybody. Yeah,
0: unfortunately if you do have uh, elevated uh, body mass index and, you know, you're obese, it, you're going to actually have surface temperatures, um, especially in body folds. So like under the armpit, which can be quite off from your core temperature. So Josh, you're right for our kids who are actually, you know, as long as their ideal body weight. And, you know, they don't have uh, any of those kind of metabolic syndromes, which unfortunately, we are now seeing at very young ages, then we do use those often. So uh, for instance, our infants and our toddlers are pretty good for axillary. But you're right, beyond that, it gets uh, difficult to actually use that accurately as your core temperature.
1: Also in pediatric households, a nasal aspirator bulb, think of a reverse turkey baster for teeny noses
0: yeah and there's a couple of different ones that you can have here there is one where you it's a bulb so you squeeze the bulb you put the tip in the nose and you let go of the bulb so as the bulb expands it creates suction but josh there is one um, so named uh, i'll call a nose frida where uh you actually you put a filter in the tube so that you don't suck up snot but you put the the little tip in the nostril and you use your breath to actually you know kind of suck out the uh the snot there <laughs> i know it sounds gross but there's a there's a good filter <laughs> and and a, and a nice long tube so you're not putting your nose right up or mouth right up to your kid's nose and it's very very effective in getting out snot
1: uh Tweezers are useful for removing splinters and also ticks.
0: Yes, 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 yes. And always remember with ticks, right? Grasp the body and you pull straight perpendicular to the skin. Make sure the head comes out.
1: Now, this is no longer recommended, but I think just because you don't want to keep these in a bathroom cabinet, a lighter or matches. Basically a source for fire, which in the olden times would be used to, you know, quickly sterilize some of these instruments which were then made of glass or metal less common now to have to sterilize a razor to perform battlefield yeah. bathroom surgery
0: <laughs> yeah yeah but, That's
1: <laughs> but for emergency purposes it's probably not a bad idea to at least have you know a hotel-sized matchbook thing do they still have those do hotels still give out matches
0: I don't think so. I think too many fires have happened, so they'll give you a mint instead.
1: <laughs> oh. Yeah. Well, I, I, the ability to have fresh breath, equally important with the ability to make fire in human advancement. <laughs> Having at least some creatable source of flame is probably mm. not a terrible idea.
0: It's not, yeah. It's, it's a good idea.
1: So let's kind of circle back um, One of the things that we as men did not mention is menstrual supplies.
0: How dare you, sir? Why must you bring up something so vulgar?
1: Yeah. So interestingly, menstrual supplies were usually kept not in the bathroom back in the day, but would be hidden away in the bedroom, uh, usually under the bed, or in little, again, nooks and crannies, and only Mm -hmm. taken into the bathroom to be used. And there's this sense at the time that the bathroom was too public a space in which to keep these things. Over time, the -the under-the-sink cabinet came into use uh, rather than the medicine cabinet as a space to keep menstrual supplies,
0: right next to the you know harsh detergents and whatnot.
1: Yeah, I just thought it was interesting though that when you think of all these things like bandages, gauze, stuff to deal with bleeding, I'm like, wait a minute, why don't you ever see things like tampons or female hygienic supplies in a medicine cabinet? Why is it always under the sink? And that's yeah. that's why it was purely cultural.
0: <laughs> and- this is something that needs to break sometime soon. Yeah, it needs to be very, very widely available, you know, female hygiene and feminine supplies should be Just as easy to get to as, you know, your Tylenol or your acetaminophen. It's so silly.
1: When we start looking at the medicine cabinet, let's look at the history of the cabinet. There was a 1941 contest in the pages of Popular Science. So remember, when I told you the cabinet started moving from the kitchen to the bathroom. 1941 contest in Popular Science asking readers to design a new medicine cabinet to respond to the needs of the increasingly modern home, and the forms of patient labor that were emerging. And this was exciting because it brought the idea that when you're a person selecting an object from your medicine cabinet, you're not just a consumer, you know, you've chosen and bought that thing, but now you're a medical worker who's going to use that object on yourself. I think we've taken that idea a little too far in 2021. (laughs) Yes, we have. But... Back in the fifties. This was super exciting. New
0: this is the new thing.
1: Or what were some of the elements of design in the first prize winner?
0: Is it the mirror in the front? So that you had a use for it when it's open or closed?
1: Yeah. Inner and outer mirrors, which okay. have remained to this day, at least the the outer mirror. Some of the things that have disappeared that I think would be neat to bring back. Drug okay. lock boxes. To separate oh. dangerous medications from more standard safe items like, you know, razors and Q-tips.
0: <laughs> oh, that's really smart. Okay, so it would, I'm guessing, have a little lock on it, so, you know, only the person know the key.
1: Yeah, as well as his and hers drawers. Also, okay, gotcha. you can separate your little pill counts into, like, oops, don't want to accidentally take the uh, birth control pills as I'm trying <laughs> to you as I'm trying to grow my hair back out. There's some really, really interesting kind of things you don't really think of it as gendered technology, but growing up as a kid, who would use the thermometer on you, mom? Right. So that's why all these things would be placed in areas that were. Convenient to usually mothers and women, except for their, again, the woman of the house is the person in charge of maintaining the space to standards of cleanliness, standards of what a healthy home was supposed to be like. And as women caretakers increasingly move not only for being in charge of the house, but becoming these medical workers. Selecting the family's medicines. Where are they going in to clean cuts and bruises? Well, in the newly sterile bathrooms made of white tile looking like labs to perform in medical operating theaters. Again, this is not an exact line. It's not like every housewife in America and around the world thought, I'm a doctor. I better go to my (laughs) operating bathroom. But as one room in the house increasingly becomes associated with sterility, you start keeping your healthcare items in that space.
0: Now, I will say uh, just in terms of, uh, I guess, what they would call like traditional roles. So, you know, if mom was the one who was, you know, spending the most time taking care of kids their ideas of from the pediatric standpoint, you know who had what conditions, who needed what medications, and then that kind of intuitive feel that you and I learned josh that that thing of like, oh, that person looks sick or doesn't quite look right i I fully fully understand that that practice kind of makes them superior, and in some ways, Josh, very interestingly it actually makes them superior to physicians and nurses. So, you know, the whole like hand on the forehead trick to say, Oh, do you have a fever? Right? So it's not very accurate by any means, but moms, okay, who don't have any medical training are actually more accurate than physicians and nurses. (laughs) It's actually been scientifically proven that they're right. um, I think some 60 something percent of the time, whereas physicians and nurses were like 40% of the time. Mm -hmm. So having all that kind of just experiential knowledge, it would make so much sense that this would be set up and ready to go, you know, for that particular role. Now, Josh, you got to help me out because something happened in the middle here where we had the beautiful sterile tiles. And then somehow, like in the seventies, we went to shag carpet on the toilet. <laughs> what the hell? People did we just did... give up on health?
1: <laughs> no, people did a lot of drugs in the sixties. <laughs> <laughs> Getting back to this idea of the medicine cabinet. So we've started moving into this, you know, making the bathroom a sterile space. And now you're moving into scientific motherhood where instead of, oh, you know, my grandmother passed this down to my mother who passed it down to me, you've got, uh, you know, again the homemaker being told by experts in various fields stock this stock that advertisers start getting in on the deal you know here's a Mm -hmm. device to use in your home and this is the space designed to house it so it's you're being bombarded from all sides with this concept of you know medicine cabinet and that's why you start getting tropes in entertainment in fact how many times in at least in our lifetime can you think of a sitcom where somebody goes snooping around the medicine cabinet to learn about the host
0: oh yeah yeah that's a very very common trope and then if you want to punish that snooper then while they're in there and the medicine cabinet falls off like it's not properly attached as you crash crash all over the yeah so think about that it's
1: (laughs) A medicine cabinet is a private space in an area with a bathroom, which is a public dimension. So, you know, you, you have this private space you're inviting guests into, and then they're actually breaking into your home while invited into your home.
0: <laughs> all right. All right. Yeah. So it's it's meant to be and hence probably some of the lock boxes and stuff in case a snooper or kids get in there that you don't want. To get in so you know you used to have a, a spot that was actually locked up by a key but okay so this was supposed to be my particular area because looking in there tells you too much about what's actually going on in my personal life
1: right um so that's that's kind of it you know in terms of where the evolution of the medicine cabinet came in now Interestingly, I told you, you don't really see that anymore. It's gone the way of quicksand and the buffalo. And (laughs) part of that is because uh, nowadays you really don't want to keep medicine in the bathroom. Now, some of the other supplies, yes, you know, things like bandages, Q-tips, razors. But you don't want to keep medicine because humidity can impact and in some cases completely inactivate some very sensitive type of medications. Now, okay. If you're keeping your Tylenol and your Benadryl and your Neosporin all in the bathroom, the amount of humidity, unless you are showering nonstop and live in, say, India, is probably not enough to really have a genuine effect. But modern theory of thinking and supply chains and storage is saying now you want to keep it in a cool dry space and things are moving back to the kitchen.
0: Okay. Yeah. All right. And that that does make sense. So right now in my house, we actually have a, a taller cabinet, which is away from the cooking space, but it's still in the kitchen where we keep most of the drugs.
1: The last thing I want to kind of touch on before we bring this episode to a close is what do you do with those expired medications? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this and is, and what is yeah. the best by date? You know, right? It says, <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. have enough trouble with my groceries. Now I have to <laughs> worry about my medications. What's going to happen when they expire? <laughs>
0: And there is going to be some controversy here, right, Josh, because we've actually found out from actually really cool studies that were done kind of unearthing medications from World War II and stuff like that and actually testing their their chemical action and their viability that actually a lot of solid medications, so the ones that come in the form of pills and powder, they actually hold up a lot longer than we think think. And a lot of the liquids too, pretty much stay okay for quite a bit longer than it says on the, like the expiry date. So the, a little bit of controversy here, but again, we don't want to go completely against what it says in the bottle.
1: So the US Food and Drug Administration recommends never taking drugs beyond their date as it's risky with unknown variables. But since we know most of you ignore that, here is some safer data. Ongoing research shows that stored under optimal conditions, you know, like pasta, cool, dry place, Mm -hmm, many mm -hmm. drugs retain about 90% of their potency for up to five years after the labeled expiration date. And (laughs) sometimes and sometimes longer, even at 10 years after the expiration date, you can retain up to about 60 to 70% effectiveness of the potency. Uh, Now, that does come with a few caveats, and I will link to that study, Um, and it was the aim of the shelf life extension program undertaken by the Department of Defense, which found that 88% of 122 different drugs stored under ideal conditions could have their expiration dates extended more than a year with an average of 66 months and a maximum of 278 months. Now, certain medications have a very narrow therapeutic window. In case right. you were wondering what those are, uh, a couple examples, and I'm not going to give you an exhaustive list for a variety of reasons, <laughs> okay. are insulin and nitroglycerin and sulfur-based medications, all of which can degrade and become toxic uh, within that, period after expiration.
0: Right. So and you can tell what a lot of those are because it says right on the box, you know, keep refrigerated and away from light. So they're already delicate if they're brought up to room temperature or they're exposed to either natural or UV light.
1: You know, ones which I, I don't actually have is uh an EpiPen may have less effect, but it's still better than nothing in an emergency situation.
0: Right. Right. Absolutely. Um,
1: but most of the pills you have, yeah, if they've expired, the best thing you can do is put them off in a corner somewhere. And if you're not taking them to be disposed of, don't just flush them down the toilet. That creates antibiotic resistance. <laughs>
0: and all sorts of other weird things as the water runoff affects our groundwater and wildlife. So absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't create ninja turtles. It, it no, more no, likely it creates it... super bacteria. Yes. <laughs> keep them around and really use for emergencies, but also keep a look at what's expired, and so that way you know what to restock. And expired medications, worst-case scenario, can go into an emergency kit that you can grab if you're on your way out the door for a hurricane, a flood, or a zombie apocalypse.
0: Uh, okay. Wait, sorry, did you say
1: zombie? I mean, you never know. We've already had a <laughs> pandemic.
0: All right. <laughs> uh. Thought we were trying to be semi-serious, but okay.
1: Right. Semi. Semi. We got to... <laughs> we, we, moderation in all things. But yeah, the expiration dates are very conservative to ensure you get the maximum efficacy of these. So just like with regular food, where you're like, can I still have this after the expiration? The short answer is yes. The longer answer is yes, but it becomes much less effective with each successive year and probably after five years you should just toss it and have replaced it so uh that's it for this week as we have finished snooping around your medicine cabinet i hope you have it all stocked <laughs> up now last uh parting shot do you know what the q and q-tip stands for
0: q uh is it the little shape of the a little bump
1: no nah, it's quality
0: they were ready,
1: ready-made <laughs> cotton swabs invented in 1923 after okay. the inventor, Leo Gerstenzang, noticed his wife making her own version by just wrapping cotton around toothpicks.
0: Oh, uh, oh dear. <laughs> and, yeah, okay, okay. but And, and to this day... As it says on the box, and as we all recommend as physicians and caretakers, you really shouldn't be using those in your external auditory canal. You can clean around the outside of your ear uh, or use it for a couple of other applications, but don't stick them in your body.
1: Just remember, folks, the Q is for quality.
0: (laughs) Quality tips. Okay, as opposed to... Not-so-quality tips, just like a tuft of... As
1: opposed to cotton around a toothpick. (laughs) So that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links for further reading. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santos and friends. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And until next time, as always... Wash your hands, wear a mask, restock your medicine cabinet, get your shot, find a country that is still open when you've done all those things, and after that, happy travels.
0: Happy travels, everybody.